Well, let's begin by just uh, doing a uh, review or kind of a broad overview of our task as we defined it last time. And I'll do that. Uh, it's not necessary for you to turn there yet. Um, but our overall view of things, as I already mentioned, is that we presently live within a fallen humanity a people of what Scott Peck would call people of the lie. And what calls itself Christianity in the last days will in fact be better understood as Christendom, the church of the world, in the world, for the world, and not that of God. That's a pretty ominous thought. It's a pretty sobering thought because even in our own neighborhood, there are churches quite literally on every corner. <laughs> there, down the street from us, there's a Catholic church, a Baptist church, and a Presbyterian church, all kitty-cornered from each other. I mean, we, you can pick your, pick your choice. Uh, what we don't have is the confidence that we will be able to go there and hear the truth. We will hear something. We'll hear a version of the truth. We'll hear a... a um, a message, but is it life-giving? That's the question. Does it offer us assurance of that we have life? That's the other question. And John's purpose in writing his letters is that we have both, that we have life, true life. And he wrote his letter so that we would know that we have that life. So John was not satisfied with just the ability for us to, uh, to, to to communicate in his gospel, which was an evangelistic effort, effort that we would be, uh, he said, I was, I'm writing to you. In fact, I'll read that in just a few minutes, but let me, let me back up here. Um, let me just give a few points of biblical reference here. First Timothy three fourteen through four or five, and say, you don't have to turn there yet. This is just preliminary. He says, I, Paul says this, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. See, these apostles were writing apostles. They not only proclaimed the word of God, they wrote it. And thanks be to God that they wrote it or we wouldn't have it. Uh, thanks be to God that this wasn't a, a first generation of people who heard the apostles and that was it. They wrote so that, maybe even unwittingly, so that they every generation after them would be able to hear firsthand what the apostles said. So I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, speaking to Timothy. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now that is a profound statement, given what we just conceded, that there are churches in every corner, but I don't know that we would be, um, it's not melodramatic to say that they are not pillars and grounds of truth. They have something going on, they're doing something, but it isn't, it isn't focused on being the pillar and ground of the truth, the support of the truth. And then in verse 16, Paul goes on, and by common confession, common confession, meaning we all agree on this point. We all agree to say the same thing that God says. Great is the mystery of godliness. And then there's this early hymn, he who was manifested in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That's a, a reference to the, uh, the common view of who Jesus is. God was manifested in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit. In other words, the spirit anointed him throughout his ministry. He was seen by angels. Angels were subject to him. 
he wasn't subject to them. He was proclaimed by the apostles among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in the glory. And then verse 1 of chapter 4 follows, but the, ex but the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times some will fall away from the faith. So we have the presentation of the apostolic truth, but the Spirit explicitly also says, so the Holy Spirit is saying two things. This is the truth, and people will fall away from it. Very sobering. From the faith, in the later times, the later times will be a time of a falling away. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So, the, it, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's, it's ominous to consider that what he's saying here is that there's two confessions. There's the confession of apostolic truth, and then in the latter days there will be a second confession that is a falling away, that represents a falling away from that faith. And the source of that falling away will be not be energized by the Spirit, as is the apostolic truth, but the character and the energy behind, the source of energy behind that falling away will be deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. I think it's really important to note that when we talk about doctrines of demons, it's not you know, little devils dancing around a fire. No. It's merely just knocking us off track. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it's, it, it's never blatant where you go, oh, that's de de demonic. Yeah, right? we, don't walk, we don't drive down the street and see a, uh, a, a denomination or a church or a group, a community of, of faith that is uh, adhering to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And as you so aptly just put, having people dancing around a fire with demons on a bonfire. It's not that kind of blatant thing. Right. And that helps us, that's a good reminder to the fact that, that sin, the very definite sin, definition of sin in Greek, is to miss the mark. Right. So as to not win the prize. Right. In other words, sin is not a gross miscalculation. It is, it is a simply... Close but no cigar. Close but no prize. You you come close. You you may even hit the target, but you miss the bullseye. And so to simply veer to the left or to the right of the truth, you can be. There's no such thing as ninety percent truth. In other words, the devil markets himself, traffics in almost truth. Right. Uh, it's not. It's not even just half truth. Sometimes it can be ninety percent truth. Right. Sounds good. Looks good. Right. Uh, it seems like Christianity, but it isn't. Because a full-on lie is obvious. Yes, but that would be too obvious. Exactly. So the subtlety of of the enemy is, is such that he presents something that appears to be. I think that's why. Paul would say that he appears as what? An angel of light. An angel of light, not a um, purveyor of darkness. You know, uh, false teachers don't stand up and say, I am here to give you darkness. They say, I'm here to give you light. Yeah. I'm here to give you a, 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 a special insight as to how to live victoriously. Reveal so the secret. Yes, right. right. Reveal the secret. Yes. Um. In verse 2, by the hypocrisy of liars, and that's an important word this morning, liars who have been seared in their own conscience. And then he goes on to describe some of what they did in that first century. They forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God created to be shared in with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. 
So there's a just a reminder this morning that we're we're living in a time where the apostolic truth is is exists. It's it's still true. It's still a refuge for us. But we're also living in a time when the Spirit Himself, the Holy Spirit Himself, is explicitly saying that in the later times some will fall away from the faith or apostatize, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And we just agreed that this won't be some kind of uh, horror show. It won't be some kind of um, what do they, what do they have during Halloween? These House of Horrors and and haunted these houses. haunted houses where people go through and they get all scared and spooked out. Right. It's not a it's not a Halloween type thing. It is mm-hmm. it is something that looks and good and sounds good. It reminds me of the uh, writer who once said that what would what would the town look like if the devil took over? If the devil took over a town, what would it look like? And he said it wouldn't be anarchy and chaos, violence, drugs, and murder. It would be rape and and uh, destruction. It would be a, a well a nice little town with well groomed yards and well behaved children, neighbors waving at each other with friendly smiles, a white little steeple church at the end of town in which the gospel is not preached. That's what it looks like when the devil takes over a town. And so that's what Paul's talking about here is is the appearance that it's something that it isn't. And all that's missing is the gospel. Um, let, me, let me start with another reference here. This is a very important background, very important to build the context for our study. Um, Paul says in Romans 1, 16 through 25, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's another thing that will happen in the last days, that people will be ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now that word power is very important. Power, power, power. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. This is the thing. We're pursuing wisdom. That was, that was part of the Gnostic ethic. We're pursuing wisdom, not truth. Um, and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a what? Lies. A lie, yes. See, that's what we're talking about again. That's what Paul was saying in, in Timothy, too. You have the truth, and you have the falsehood, and the falsehood looks a lot like the truth. It sounds a lot like the truth, except something's missing. And what's missing? Power. Very important. A worship and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. So just one more brief text to help us maintain the context for our study. First uh, Timothy 3. So what is the church going to look like in the last days, the latter times? Uh, 
And what is it we are to avoid? He says in 1 Timothy 3, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3 is what I meant. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 3, but know this. Think of that. These words are so important. But know this. That in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, but having denied its power. There's that word power again. So, a powerless gospel. Mm -hmm. A powerless gospel would define. In other words, the church will look just like the world because the church is in the world and the world and the church is of the world. It's, it becomes so identified with the world, it looks and sounds. And the character of those who are in this community that looks and sounds like the church is, in fact, no different than the character of the people who are in the world. Mm -hmm. And Paul tells us clearly this is what's going to happen. The church of the last days will look like this. Yeah. Uh, and they will have a form of godliness. Another translation would be religion, maintaining an appearance of religion, and to deny its power. Uh, the word deny there would be... Uh, also translated repudiate its power. In other words, they're repudiating the power of the Holy Spirit. They don't need him. They don't need him. They don't want him. He's not welcome. Think of that. The Holy Spirit's not welcome in our fellowship. We've got our trappings. We have our um, stained glass. We have our vested our, our clergy in their vestments and we have all the appearances we have the cross on the wall we have we have everything that, that creates a spiritual atmosphere without having to have the holy spirit himself right keep away from such men as these now that's an imperative paul's saying that there's a form of religion masking as Christianity in the last days that we are commanded by the apostles to stay away from. Don't fall into that pit. Don't fall either into the ditch on the left of the narrow road or the ditch on the right of the narrow road. So, this requires that we be discerning and devoted lovers of the truth in the last days. Uh, not that we have to be consider ourselves as something hyper-spiritual, or we just, we are objects of mercy, that's what we are. God has had mercy on his children and preserved us in the truth. Uh, and we are commanded to be lovers of the truth. Not a subjective truth, not a cultural truth, not a philosophical or psychological truth, and not even a truth that is conveyed by religious leaders because they can't be trusted either. But the truth as it's revealed in Jesus Christ. And that revelation is contained for us within the pages of the Scripture. Mm -hmm. So we have to be students of Scripture and we have to understand the self-revelation of God in His Son is that which we have to be very jealous to uh, maintain. This is why he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, lest we drift away. That, that's, that's, the, that's what we're addressing this morning, mm -hmm. is we have to be very clear about the nature and character of truth, and then... Pay attention. <laughs> Pay attention.
pay attention, uh, pay much close, closer attention. The days in which we live demand that we not be um, complacent or that I've got mine, I'm in, I'm good, you know. No, that we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. See, people don't fall away, they drift away and then fall away. There be the, the, a great falling away that, that Paul refers to in Second Timothy begins with a slow drift. And remember, it's never blatant. Satan is too subtle for that. It's always looks good, sounds good, but it isn't good. Right. He's cunning. Cunning. The great falling away begins with a drifting away. For if the words spoken through angels, meaning the law, proved unalterable, and every trespass and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That salvation first spoken by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard the apostles, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So, two things are at play here. We have the reality that we live in a world grounded in the lie, politically, socially, religiously. The good news is, is that God has come into the world in the person of his son, who was truth incarnate, hallelujah, who spoke truth, and those who heard him were faithful to record that truth in writing so that it wouldn't just be a first generation who heard him or heard them, it would be you and I this morning having that same revelation as it was spoken by the apostles in the first century so that we are full beneficiaries. And while there may be 2,000 years of difference, uh, a space between us, there is virtually no space between us and the words that came out of the lips of our Lord. The truth that that the Son spoke to the apostles who heard him and then they conveyed to us is as powerful and as living and as life-transforming and saving today as it was the moment that he spoke it. So there is no time and space between us and the truth although there be 2,000 years of church history since the actual event of the Lord speaking and the apostles hearing and recording. We are, it, it's just as alive today as if we were hearing him in this moment. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. And so we have to be very mindful of that. We have to be very, it's a very solemn responsibility to come to the text, the scripture, the inspired text, and understand what it is we hold in our possession. The Bible is not a self-help book, nor is it just a compilation of wise sayings so that we can uh, make something of it that we want it to be for our own personal use. It is a revelation of God and His Son as preserved and recorded by the apostles without time and space has not been diluted one iota by the time and space between us and the time that they said it, so that it has the same power today as it did then. Wow, that's powerful. So, that's a framework. That's just a framework for what, why, why we do this study. We are desperate people 
we're desperate because you live in a world full of lies. Okay, so let's let's now turn back to John in particular. We've spoken about the message, we've spoken about the counter-message of the doctrines of demons, and we're speaking now of the apostles and their work on our behalf. God bless them. And now we're going to take that into the particular. We started out with the broad, as we always do in Bible study, we always start out with the broad overview, and then we begin to uh, define it closer and closer, and to and particularize it. And in this case, we're going to look particularly at John, at, just like we did last time. John, first John? Yes, yes, but we're going to, I'm going to just quote, just remind you, first of all, that who's writing this? John is an evangelist. He's writing as an evangelist and is primarily to the Gentiles. And, but he's writing with a very Jewish background, of course. And so he is a Jew. He has a Jewish background. Uh, and that's not a bad thing at all. Uh, he, is, he is a Jew writing to Gentiles who become Jews through the gospel. <laughs> he who is a Jew is one inwardly, he says, Romans 2.29, not one who's outwardly. Circumcision is of the heart, not of the flesh. So, uh, to be to be a, 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 in union with Jesus Christ, who is the true seed of Abraham, uh, is to be sons and daughters of, of Abraham as well. So, we are John is writing from that perspective, but he's writing from the revelation of Jesus Christ. So John has two purposes in being an evangelist. In his gospel, he writes so that we might have life, we might believe in the name of the Son of God, and in him have life. It says that in John 20, verses 30 through 31. I am writing this gospel so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, what do we mean by name? The character and the reality of who he is, of the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. So he writes his gospel so that we may have life. And then this morning we'll discover in his epistle, his first epistle, in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So it's a follow-up letter to the gospel. So that you may know you have life. So he wrote the gospel so that we might have life in the Son. But there's something needed. There's something more needed here. And that is that we may know that we have life in his Son. So we need we need both we need both the life itself and we need the assurance that we have that life. The world is filled with people who are professing Christians. I'm always burdened on Sunday morning knowing that churches are filling up or at least attended pews are being warmed by people who know, probably know neither. They don't know, they don't possess life, true life in his son, nor do they, let alone, assurance of that life. So John wants you and I to know this morning those two things. He wants us to possess life, the life that comes by believing in the name of the Son of God. And... He wants us to be assured. He wants us to know experientially, existentially, that we have that life. So this is very important. The life that John is writing that we might possess is not informational. He's not simply providing information. He's not prevent, simply saying, I want you to have these doctrines. I want you to have this uh, doctrinal statement tucked inside the flap of your Bible. He's saying, I want you to possess something very experiential, 
very existential, something that changes the fabric and tone and experience of your life. And I want you to know that what you have is true, is legitimate, so that you can cling to it and not, as we said earlier, begin to step into the drift. Okay. So life with assurance. Now, <clears throat> so John is writing for sem many reasons. He says, let's look at that. First John 1, 4. Let's just remind us of that too. He's writing for the major reason, the overall umbrella reason he's writing this letter, we find in 5.13 where he says, so that you may know you have eternal life, as I just said. But as kind of a subcategory, he says, this is how you will know. So that's the heading. If this was a, a PDF and we had headings, we would it'd be Roman numeral one. I'm writing so you may have eternal life. And then point A would be verse 4, chapter 1. And what's that say? And these things we are writing so that our joy may be made complete. Right. Yeah, we talked about that last time. So yeah. these are the subsettings. Uh, the first thing we understand, the a point of assurance that we have, is that we possess joy. That the Christian life is a life of joy. Not just joy, but complete. Complete, yes. Good catch. Complete joy. Yeah. It isn't just something that is a fleeting joy. It isn't just a buzz we get during the worship service. Right. It isn't an altered state of consciousness that comes as we listen to loud music and drums and waving hands and dancing around the room. Right. It isn't just a warm feeling that comes and goes. A complete joy is something that we possess as a result of having eternal life. And how do we know that we have eternal life? Because we have ex we have access to and it can, and may experience and can experience. We have the the right even to experience complete joy. And I think I asked this question last time. How many Christians have complete joy? In fact, somebody who heard that last um, session, that last lesson, said, thank you for asking that. I don't know that I've ever asked myself that. Do I have complete joy? But that's one subsection reason why John is writing. And so look at verse chapter 2, verse 1 now. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, joy and understanding. Huh? And freedom from sin. And freedom from sin. Right. There you go. Certainly freedom from the need to deal with our sins in our own strength. Whether it's through the Catholic or the Protestant confessional. You know, so well, there's the Protestant confession will be going down to the altar call, you know, on Sunday night at the evangelistic service. They're going to coming down from the stadium uh, benches, uh, the bleachers, and coming down and praying with the evangelists in the center of the crusade stadium. And, you know, some form of confessional where we're constantly having to deal with sin instead of being freed from sin. Christians, a lot of professing Christians are sin-haunted people. They're constantly walking around conscious of their sins when the purpose and the full atonement of Christ is to cleanse us from our sins, cleanse our conscience from our sins. It's not God's will that we be walking around being sin-haunted and sin-burdened. I know there's some in the reform world that think that's very pious, but it's really not. It's not biblical. Okay, so that we have joy and freedom from sin. And he affirms that again in verse 12 of chapter 2. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. There is nothing more important to the believer 
No doctrine more important than to know that your sins are forgiven for his namesake. For his namesake. For whose namesake? For Christ's namesake. We don't do Christ any glory or honor by being sin-haunted people. So John is saying, I'm writing to you so that you may know that your sins are forgiven. Now, the question came up this week, well, what sins? See, this is how the devil goes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your sins are forgiven before baptism. But what about the sins you're currently committing or have committed? Are those sin, Are those covered too? And knowing you, what about the sins you will commit? So what haunts us oftentimes about sin is not that we are um, concerned about the sins being forgiven before baptism. There's something beautiful about coming up out of the waters of baptism. We experience a sense of freshness and cleanness. There's been a demarcation point. We no longer are who we once were. Not that baptism itself does that, but it's a it's a ordinance of the Lord that allows us to experience existentially that which is true for us spiritually already. But a few hours or a few days later, we we stumble, we fall into sin, and we, we do something that harms another, and we realize that we're still struggling with an impulse of the flesh or some type. Uh, and we go back out and we start beginning the Christian life and find ourselves struggling to maintain and form healthy relationships or to be free of addictions. And we realize, well, there's still something at work here I need to work with. So where does the forgiveness of sins fit into that parameter? The good news that every Christian needs to hear is that their sins are forgiven for his namesake, past, present, future. Right. It's like Richard Jordan says, let me ask you, when Jesus died for your sins 2,000 years ago, how many of those sins were future at that time? They all were future sins. <laughs> so when Christ forgave you of your sins, it was for all your sins. Through the entire scope of your life, from birth to the moment you breathe your last breath, the entire scope of the issue and the and the problem of sin has been dealt with. Mm-hmm. Now that actually provides motivation for us not to sin. We we don't want to sin when we realize the treasure and the cherished gift that we have of such forgiveness. And we don't want to sin because it's not who we are anymore. That's why this teaching that somehow we're just sinners saved by grace, it's a technically true, it's practically destructive because we're not losing the sense of sin-hauntedness. Christian life is not about constantly dealing with sin. It's about growing into the image of Christ. And we purify ourselves as we do that. So, Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's look at one more. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 26. And this brings us back again to the points earlier. He says, these things I have written to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Mm-hmm. So, are there people trying to deceive us today? Yes. And they're trying to do so in the name of Jesus. But it's not the biblical Jesus. It's not the true Christ. It's some manufactured alternative Jesus that they're using to try to deceive us. This isn't the godless liberals, the communists, the atheists, this, these are people who profess Jesus who are trying to deceive you by 
handing you an alternative Jesus. If you don't understand that point, then you don't understand the New Testament. Rarely does the New Testament make the dichotomy between true faith and unbelievers or atheists. It always makes it between true faith and false faith. Mm. Big difference. Yeah, big difference. It's not Stephen Hawking's that is our concern. It's, it's, it's the guys who say they are, are Christian leaders that are a concern. So there are people trying to deceive us. And he first says in verse 27, And as for you, the anointing whom you have received, and notice he says whom, which means what? A person. Yes, it's a person. We have received an anointing, and the anointing is not an it. It is a whom. Whom you have received, meaning the Spirit, mm -hmm. from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. He's not saying we don't have any need for teaching. We don't any, need any new teaching. Mm -hmm. These are people who are in possession of the apostolic truth. They had been taught it once. They possessed it. And there's nothing new coming. There's no new revelation coming. Mm -hmm. We don't need these guys to come along with their new special insights, new special views of the gospel, and pretend that it's it's not complete. It's complete. Complete joy is tied to having a complete truth. Mm -hmm. And we don't need any supplements. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as he had taught you, abide in him. So, there we go. So, to conclude our time together this morning, we want to remind, be reminded that the two major points are that we have a true confession of sin and a true confession of the remedy, which is Jesus Christ. Yes. And we remember from last time that the word confession means what? To agree with God. Yes, to say the same thing that God says. It's the Greek word homologeo. Homo meaning same, logeo meaning Greek word for word. To say, to speak. So to say the same thing as God says about these two things, sin mm -hmm. and Jesus Christ, his son, the remedy for that sin. So what is... If we're not saying the same thing as God, what might we be saying? If we're speaking about sin, and we're speaking about Jesus Christ, what's the alternative to saying, what would be the contrast to saying the same thing as God says? To be saying whatever serves my own self-interest. Yeah, so it'd be a subjective response. There you go. Yeah, as opposed to an objective response. Objective truth as opposed to subjective truth. So, so today then, let us close, Come start bringing us to a close by just looking then closer at this thing of confession. In 1 John 2, 23, we're told, everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father. And this is what we were talking about earlier in the recovery community. People profess to know God without knowing the Son. And so the first thing we have to understand, what God says, if you don't know my Son, you don't know me. Right. Everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father. And then he gets, takes the positive. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So let's, let's translate that. The one who says the same thing that I, the Father says about the Son has the Father also. You can't have the Father, the God and Father of all, and not say the same thing that he says about his Son. This is like the parable that Jesus told of those who 
of the vineyard owner who rented out the vineyard and then he sent servants to collect his share of the the produce and they killed him they killed him one after another so finally the owner of the vineyard says well I'll send my son surely they'll respect him and so when the son showed up at the vineyard the servants the, the, the workers of the vineyard said ah this is the heir let us kill him and take the vineyard for ourselves and Jesus has drawn the parallel there to the Pharisees and the religious structure in Jerusalem at the time, when instead of hearing him, were preparing to kill him, thinking that they would preserve for themselves their own power and authority and their religious structure over the people. So this is the same thing. You cannot profess, and this is a very important point in these last days, you cannot possess the knowledge of God, the Father if you don't say the same thing that the father says about his son. We don't have the prerogative to create alternative views of Jesus. And this happens all the time. It's happened throughout church history. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, warning of those who will preach another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. And the world and the culture and even the religious world is always striving to prevent or present to us to sell us on another alternative view of Jesus. Mm -hmm. What are some of the ways that that's showing up today in our culture? <clears throat> Good question. Well, the media is really into it right now. I mean, The Chosen, that series, oh, The Chosen, right. People are, uh, so many professing Christians are so enamored by, uh, presents an alternative view of Jesus other than that which the Father says in his inspired text. So we have an alternative Jesus that people just can't get enough of. Um, it's not an accurate biblical view of Jesus, but people are running towards it, waving their hands, and they can't spend their money fast enough to buy tickets or to watch this series. And there are even Christian leaders who say, oh, it's such a wonderful thing because it's a non-threatening view of Jesus. Well, the biblical Jesus is not a non-threatening figure. I mean, he's very threatening. He wasn't crucified because he was non-threatening. Jesus threatens the whole Luciferic structure of lies. Built, built within religion. There's another uh, film out now called We Are Israel, which is supposed to uh, highlight and magnify the ethnic geographic state of Israel in the Middle East, and it shows several people of Jewish descent who are standing in front of the camera saying, I am Israel. I am Israel. I am Israel. Well, Okay, <laughs> as far as that goes, I get it. You are Israel. You are Jewish. Nothing wrong with that. God bless you. Happy for you. Biblically, we understand that in Galatians 3 that Paul identifies Jesus as the long-awaited-for seed of Abraham. So you can be ethnic Israel and not be Israel. If you're not in Christ, Jesus is the long-awaited seed of Abraham. He is Israel. And we who are in him are sons and daughters of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. Very important to understand that. The Bible teaches that so clearly, but we get all hooked up in what Israel is based upon the ethnic and geographic nation in the Middle East that we forget who Jesus is. And that's what it's designed to do, is to get us to forget who Jesus is. Now we can refer to John chapter 8 here, when Jesus told the group of believing Jews, who professed belief in him, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Mm -hmm. 
they weren't looking for a Messiah to set them free. They were just looking for a Messiah to affirm who they were already. They were looking for a Messiah who would transform them. They were looking for a Messiah who would affirm them. And they said, well, how can you say we'll be set free? Because we are children of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. And then Jesus goes on to explain anyone who sins is a slave of sin. And no one who is a slave continues in the house forever. Drawing the household uh, analogy. But if the son, who is the heir of the house, mm -hmm. sets you free, then you shall be free indeed. And of course, that conversation escalates and Jesus finally tells him, I know you are Abraham's children. But if you were spiritually Abraham's children, you would not be seeking to kill me. And their response is, is who's trying to kill you? Are we not right to say that you are a Samaritan? See, that was a one of the greatest ethnic slurs you could give a Jew at that time. Mm -hmm. You're a Samaritan. And have a demon? And then Jesus said, no, no, I'm, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father. There is one problem here, though, is that you claim to be Jews, but your father is actually of the devil. And the desires that you want and to do are desires that he had from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. So if you read John's Gospel, chapter 8, you discover who Israel really is. Mm -hmm. And that's not an anti-Semitic statement because there's not a, not a bone or cell in me that longs anything good, but good for anyone, right. including ethnic Israel. These are human beings mm -hmm. in need of the Gospel. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, Paul says in Romans 10. My, my point is, is that there's all kinds of distractions in the media yeah. from who Jesus is. Right. It's not, it's not um, without agenda. Mm -hmm. So whether it's the chosen, whether they're actually just showing an alternative, blatant alternative view of Jesus, or whether it's who is Israel, uh, I am Israel, showing, trying to distract from the the fact that, uh, or try to promote the old dispensational view that there's two plans of God, one for Israel and one for the church. Mm -hmm. Or even that new campaign, Jesus gets us. Yeah, he gets us. Is that God sent his son into the world because he gets us. Christ's mission was to come and say, hey, I get you guys. I'm just like you. I'm just like you. I understand. Hey, I lived a fully human life. I know. I get it. You know, man, I get you. I understand you. Is that what we really need from Jesus is not what First John says that we need, which is forgiveness of sins and to be children of God after the model and image of Jesus. Right. But we need him to get us. We need to be understood. And so God sent his son into the world to understand us. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true. No. But what that comes from, it comes from a mindset that says something different about sin than the father says. And something different about the son than the father says. Right. So let me just conclude then. Or let us just conclude with this one important point. And that is, as John is wrapping up this letter, he says, <clears throat> in verse 21, the last verse of this letter, let's actually read verse 20 with it. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that, there's a Greek purpose clause, we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now look closely at verse 21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So this is 
this is not the final closing statement of a study where we just we've already drifted away and we're already thinking about what we're going to do for the rest of the day <laughs> we're already thinking about what comes next when the study's over um, and if you happen to be listening uh, to, the, the, to the recording of this stay present for another moment because what we're going to say here is very important John is saying clearly in this letter that there's two points of confession that are absolutely necessary to agree with God about. And that is the nature of sin and reality of sin. And secondly, the nature and person and work of his son. So let me say that again. John is saying there's two points of confession that we must cling to. We need to say the same thing that God says about the nature and reality of sin and what? The character and person of his son. The work and the person of his son. Mm -hmm. And to say anything different then is to be idolatrous. That's what John's point is here. Mm -hmm. He's not just having a random thought. He's not just teaching this long letter and then saying, oh, Oh, by the way, avoid idolatry too. Avoid idols. Yeah, I meant to say that earlier, but I forgot, so I'm just going to drop this in at the last moment. No, he's saying, my whole letter has been about helping you avoid idols. And idols have to do with saying something different than God says, than God says about the nature and reality of sin and the person and work of my son. So how important is it then that we pay much closer attention and, and be biblical in our thinking in these days? It's a, it's a criminal thing that the average Christian is not being taught how to, what the Bible is and how to study it effectively, how to read it, so they can grasp for themselves the power, is that word again, Power of the gospel to transform them. Uh, salvation is far more than just getting our ticket punched so we can go to heaven because we believed the right things in the moment and we said a simple prayer. It's about becoming like Jesus. And any form of the gospel that doesn't actively work in us to begin and then spend the entirety of the Christian life conforming us into the model and image of Christ in thought, word, and deed is not the gospel. It's an idol. Okay. Any other thoughts? No. I know that's a lot. It is a lot. And it requires some time to process and perhaps to review it several times. I, I want, I'm always tempted to, to try to present these studies in a way that is <clears throat> entertaining, that is brief, that gives us a snack instead of the full meal deal. Because mm -hmm. I, I want people to like what they're hearing. I want people to be really happy about what they're hearing. But that's my problem. That would create a problem for you and anyone else who hears these studies right. because I'm not being faithful at that point. There's nothing, there's nothing simple or entertaining that will um, actually convey the power and the life of the gospel to us. I think everyone who listens to you wants the truth, honey. Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah, yeah. I know I do. I know you do. Yeah, I do. And anyone who's with us once a month will as well. So, okay, well, let's, let's pray. Father, we want to pause here and thank you again for your mercy that you have called us into fellowship with your son as you define him, not as we do not as the culture does, not as the world does, 
and sadly, not even as so much of the what we know as Christianity does today. So we, we subject our hearts and our minds to your word this morning, the truth of your word, on those two points. Point of the nature and the reality of sin and the nature and the work of the, the person of your son, the remedy for sin. Thank you that you are at work in us, conforming us into his image. That the grand hope that we have is that we're more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. Just not as much as we will be tomorrow. We pray for your continued uh, blessing on our studies. May the Lord strengthen us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.